Please be seated. It is often said that it's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. That's proverbial, of course. It does matter what we know, and what we know can be crucial to who we know. But the proverb reminds us that our lives hinge on relationships. Who we know is very significant. This is not only true of relationships with the living, but also of relationships we have with people long dead. For instance, we gather here today in part because of the labors of our nation's founding fathers. We are the recipients of much of the work that they did. A number of us are first-generation Americans, but most of us are here because of ancestors long dead who immigrated to this country. We may not often think about it, but their decision, their resolve to board a ship, to cross the sea, and to come to this new world affects us every day of our lives. It is in part who we are. Our relationship to them is significant, whether we think of it or not. Another relationship that we may not think about, I doubt that too many of us would probably have come into the service here today thinking about our relationship with Abraham. That's just not something that gets you up in the morning, perhaps, but we, we should be considering that. A relationship of vital significance to us as Gentile Christians. And we've considered that already today in the reading of Scripture and in some of the songs that we've sung. This relationship is so crucial because God chose to covenant with Abraham at a very strategic point in salvation history. He chose to covenant with Abraham in such a way that God's saving grace flows through Abraham to all believers who live downstream from him in salvation history. As Gentiles, we are included among God's people by being grafted into the vine of God's salvation purposes. And the roots of that vine pass in initial stages through Abraham and God's covenant with this man of faith. The roots of that vine include God's election of Abraham in chapter 12, as we've read already this morning, and they continue on from Genesis chapter 12 into subsequent chapters as God develops that relationship and nurtures and fills out aspects of that covenant. Now, as we come to Galatians chapter 3 today, you make, make your way to this book and this chapter. We'll look at chapter 1 in just a moment first. But as we come to chapter 3 in Galatians today, our relationship to Abraham, the father of Israel, is emphasized and it is significant for each of us. That relationship, we learn, hinges on what we know and believe. Not on what we do to qualify ourselves for it. Doug Moo rightly says that the identity of Abraham's children, quote, is the question that Paul and the agitators are debating with the Galatians as the audience. That's nicely put. There is a debate 
between the Apostle Paul and those false teachers who were influencing the Galatians. And the Galatians are reading this and hearing of this debate and considering where they stand in their relationship to Abraham and to Christ. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. We remember there as Paul starts addressing them, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is such a thing. But there are those who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Let's get this straight, he says, verse 8. Even if we, even if I do show up, or even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Well, there were those kinds of teachers who were influencing the Galatians. They were teaching the Galatian churches. Remember that Paul was not really a legitimate apostle, that he had twisted the gospel and its saving power, that he really didn't understand the message. And they were stressing that these people, these Gentile Christians, needed to qualify as members of God's family by circumcision. That is, the male heads of households had to qualify as God's children by identifying with God's covenant with Abraham through obedience to the law that came through Moses sometime after Abraham. Paul vehemently opposes this teaching as compromising the gospel. First, he argues at some length that the gospel he preaches was revealed to him directly by Christ. He didn't get it mixed up. He talked to the very apostles there that false teachers are using as support, and they never straightened out his gospel. They confirmed it. It was the same gospel, exterior to both, external to both, and given by God. So he's been defending that through the book uh, to this point. The key we noted in chapter 2 and verse 16, again to quote Schreiner, is the central thesis of the letter and perhaps the most significant text in Galatians. Chapter 2 and verse 16. What does he say there? Know this as he encourages, exhorts, calls the Galatian believers to the truth. Know this. A person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In chapter 3 and verse 1, as we come here today, Paul renews this rebuke of the Galatians who are being swayed by these false teachers. They're listening to those who insist they cannot participate in the blessings of God flowing through Abraham. They cannot qualify as God's people unless they appeal to the works of the law, unless they perform those works and submit to them. Specifically, circumcision, but beyond that, identifying through that old covenant with God. So in the first five verses here of Galatians 5, first of all, Paul calls the Galatians to come to their senses. 
Remembering that faith in the gospel saved them and recognizing that faith in the gospel will sanctify them. It will lead them to growth in Christ. Significant points for us, though this debate is not ours. We're pretty comfortable with our connection to Abraham. We're, not, we're very comfortable with Paul as an apostle. and We understand these ideas. We're not debating these same things. But as we, as we enter into this conversation and this, this, this debate, we do learn who we are. And we pick up here on what the gospel is and how it applies in our lives. So beginning at verse 1, Paul seeks to awaken the Galatians to their spiritual folly. There's a string of five rhetorical questions here he seeks to get them to think about to change their position. Oh, foolish Galatians. He doesn't start out very tenderly, but that's a shot right to the stomach. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Paul is upset with their spiritual dullness and his rebuke is urgent. He's so exasperated he wonders if a sorcerer has cast a spell on them. I don't think that he's probably wholly serious here. I don't think he thinks that there's some sorcerer out there. But he is, on the other hand, very concerned about their succumbing to evil influence. There's nothing less than the gospel at stake here. Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Why are you so dull? Why are you missing this truth? Like Eve in the garden, they were eyeing forbidden fruit, and they must stop. Think about this, people, he says. Verse 1 in the middle of the verse. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Do you remember when I came to you I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You had never heard of it before. You had no idea what it was. This good news that Jesus Christ died to bear the penalty of our sins. And that he rose from the dead in victory over death to give us eternal life. You'd never heard that message before. But do you remember as I talked to you about this Jew who died, executed by the Roman soldiers, and brought you the message of what that death meant? Do you remember that? I proclaim to you how Jesus died and rose again to pay the full penalty of your sins. I vividly portrayed him dying in your place to suffer the judgment of your sin. Do you remember this? Verse 2. Let me ask you only this. I got this one big question. This is it. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit? Paul preached the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. They responded to that message in faith. What was the result? He's saying, first of all, did I encourage you that it was necessary to identify with God through obedience to the law. No, but what was the result when I preached that message to you? What happened when I told you about Jesus crucified and risen? Here's what happened. You received the Spirit. You received the Spirit of God. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit and baptizes the new believer. 
washes and cleanses that believer and transfers that believer from the realm of Adam to the realm of Christ. There's a work of the Spirit of God that takes place there that we cannot quantify, we can't put a finger on it, we can't draw a picture of it, we can't prove that it's taking place. There are times in history where that is provable, but that's not the norm. This process starts after Jesus ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit as promised. And we know where it starts in Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and there there was the evidence of speaking in unstudied languages. Being able to articulate languages that they had never studied or necessarily even heard. This was the evidence of the Spirit of God there among them at Acts 2. But that same process is happening all the time. Jesus, still risen, still ascended, still calling out a people for His name, does so by the proclamation of the message of Christ crucified and risen, and then pouring out His Spirit upon those who respond. That Spirit cleanses us and indwells us at the time that we respond to that message. Now this just causes me to stop here naturally and say, how do I know if I've received the Holy Spirit? How do I know that this has really happened in my life, that I truly have responded in a saving way to the gospel, and that Jesus has poured out His Spirit upon me? How do I know that? How do I understand that this has happened? Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16 are a great help. They read this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And while more could be said, let me just break out of this text of Scripture, this background help from the pen of the Apostle Paul, a few ideas. The first is, if I have been baptized by the Spirit of God in response to the Gospel, I have a new desire to obey God. I have a new desire to obey Him. Now, Depending on how old I am, it may be difficult to see the newness of this in some sense, but I think everyone should recognize I have a new desire to do what God wants me to do. I can't necessarily explain it. A lot of people living around me want to do the exact opposite, but I have a desire to listen to God's Word and do it. One evidence. A second evidence is I have a hatred of sin and a sense that its bondage has been broken. Now, I still sin. And I still face great temptation. But there's a sense that it is true that this power of sin has been broken. I'm not the slave of sin any longer, but I am the slave of Christ. Thirdly, is a heart that is filled with the love for God as my Father. A sense that God is not just this distant God, but that He is my Father. That there has been an adoption here, that I claim Him as my Father, and I know how I can do so because of my trust in the Gospel of Christ. And number four, there is the internal witness of the Spirit. Now again, we can't quantify this. Our 
nose doesn't glow when we get this. We can't prove it to anybody necessarily, but we can't get around. It is subjective, but there should be a sense of this internal witness of the Spirit, that the Spirit Himself is whispering, so to speak, you are God's child. You are God's child. There are times we grieve the Spirit through our sin. There are times that we fail God miserably. But there should be a sense throughout that I belong to God and His Spirit indwells me. I don't think you should think in terms of this is unimpeachable at all times in your Christian walk. There will be times of doubt. There will be times of confusion. But as you look at these evidences, this desire to obey God, this love for Him as our Father, this hatred of sin, and this internal witness, this, so to speak, whispering of the Spirit of God that I belong to Him as His child. That should be there. As Paul is talking to the Galatians, he's saying, this was all there for you. This was part of your experience. And added to that, on top of what we might experience, verse 5, the Galatians had the evidence of the Spirit working miracles among them. That was very tangible. That was very objective. And they experienced those miracles. It was very clear that the Spirit had come with the message that Paul brought. And the Spirit had come to indwell them. So here are these Galatian believers reading this letter. And they know as they look around that we have formed churches that are indwelt by the Spirit of God and have been baptized by the Spirit of God. Here they are having heard from Paul, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The indwelling Spirit, the indwelling Christ is there. They are participants in the new age of the Spirit of God. Paul says, now I want you to think about this and your experience. How did all of that come about? How did you receive the Spirit of God? How is it that Christ is dwelling in you? Two options. The first option is that this all happened by works of the law. Did God receive you as His children and baptize you in the Spirit because you were circumcised? Is that what happened? Is that what you remember? Is that what you recall? Is that the message that I preached to you that brought the Spirit of God into your assemblies? When I preached the gospel to you, did I ever mention the need to submit to the old covenant law? Or, option two, by hearing of faith. But let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Probably meaning by hearing the gospel preached and trusting that message. The work of God's Spirit in their hearts began in that second way. When Paul preached the message in Jesus, of Jesus crucified for their sins and risen, they trusted that message. And it was in the hearing and in the trusting that the Spirit of God came. The evidence of this new age of salvation in Christ came through the message they heard and believed. Now here's the logical follow-up, verse 3. Are you so foolish... Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
if, if you were indwelt by the Spirit by trusting the message of salvation in Christ, if you were regenerated by hearing the gospel and believing it, what utter folly to believe that you can add to your salvation and qualify as God's child by performing works of the law, by doing good deeds and thus impressing God. Now, that wasn't the intention of the law, but that was, in fact, how many Israelites were following the law and how these individuals were being encouraged. As Mu puts it so succinctly, the Christian life continues the way it begins, through faith and by the Spirit. Through faith and by the Spirit. So remembering in verse 16 of chapter 2, we are justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is precisely the message I brought to you, the message to which you responded. How do you think now that you're going to carry on a different road? Verse 4, did you suffer? Let's add another question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? It had not been easy to trust Christ the Savior and turn their backs on pagan gods and reject the worldview of their communities. Was all that pain for nothing? Would they now return to the safer confines of works-based religion? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a repeat of verse 2, simply now looking at it from God's standpoint. The Spirit who indwells them and the miracles he works among them are not generated by works of the law performed by the Galatians. That's just not how you turn the faucet on. They have participated in the new age of the Spirit that dawned on them apart from circumcision or other rituals of the Old Covenant. And if that's the case, why go back there now? Why dip into the old age, pre-cross of Christ, to grow and to mature on this side of your salvation in Christ? In fact, Paul will now argue in the opposite direction of his opponents that salvation by faith alone and not by works of the law actually does link them to Abraham. We do not need to be circumcised. We do not need to submit to the law. It is through faith that we are linked to Abraham. So secondly here, in verses 6-9, through nine, Paul insists that we become children of Abraham by faith in the gospel, not by works of the law. Verse 6, just as, connecting to everything that he said, Abraham himself believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a reference to Genesis 15, 6, where God promises Abraham that he will father a great nation. And you remember that was against all odds, about all expectations. And what does Abraham do in response? He believes he believes God's promise and God judges Abraham to be righteous by virtue of his trust in God's word. He doesn't say Abraham is the best man on earth that I've ever found. 
But he says, Abraham has believed my promise, and so I have elected him, I've chosen him, I've called him, I've covenanted with him, and Abraham believed. He does not earn God's favor by doing anything. He is not circumcised in Genesis 15. He simply believes what God has revealed. The Jews of Paul's day tended to emphasize, as they read the account of Genesis in Abraham's life, they tended to emphasize that God responded to Abraham's obedience. But Paul, in a different direction, says it's really not Abraham's obedience. Now, he did obey. He did repent in that sense and followed God's call, but really it was just belief. He trusted God. What Genesis actually reveals then is that God spoke his word, a promise to Abraham, and Abraham simply trusted God's word. Though he did obey in the end, he was declared righteous because he believed the word of God. Now, just a quick sideline of instruction to all of us, I, I, I trust will be helpful. Do you believe that there was one way of salvation in the Old Testament, obedience to the law, offering sacrifices, being circumcised, observing the holy days, following the ritual. That's how people were saved by works of the law in the Old Testament. Then comes the cross of Christ and then the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there's a new way of being saved. Now, for the first time, God says, we're going to try this a different way and it's now salvation by faith. Do you believe that? What Paul is teaching us here is that that's wrong thinking. Salvation has always been by faith alone. It was by faith alone in Abraham, and it was by faith alone in everybody that was under the Mosaic law. Now, God does place unique requirements on his people under the law of Moses that they were to follow. There was a matter of obedience that was necessary there, but their salvation came by faith alone. The thing that changes is that the content of the message we're trusting is distinct as salvation history progresses. So what did the Old Testament saints believe? Well, they could never fully answer the question of how a righteous God can justify and forgive sinners. There was a sense of that idea, certainly. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, the psalmist said. David said in 32 of Psalm. But there was never really a full sense of how that can be. Old Testament saints look forward to Messiah with a somewhat shrouded sense of how God would use Messiah to save His people. They sometimes even filled in the wrong blanks. But they, they knew Messiah would come as a Savior. They didn't know precisely how He would save. And yet, Old Testament believers like us were saved by faith in God's Word. Whatever God had revealed at that stage in salvation history is what they must believe. And so what Paul is saying, you're, if you're over here putting your faith in what is outdated, 
and outmoded. There's nothing wrong with it where it is, but God has moved forward progressively. Now you've got to place your faith here. You've got to trust what God is doing now. We are always saved by faith alone. Verse 7, know then, here's his conclusion off of Abraham's example, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Against the false teacher's position, Paul says that those who join Abraham's holy offspring do so by hearing and believing God's word, period. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's it. We Gentiles become spiritual sons of Abraham by believing God's word as Abraham did. We become sons of Abraham through faith and not by works. By the way, sons is inclusive of men and women, of course, but in the setting of that day, Sons were those who had inheritor status and shared the same status as a father. So sons is used here of all of us generically saying that we are inheritors of the riches of God. Paul stresses that the Old Testament fully anticipated our inclusion among God's people with the Jews. Although the church is the body of Christ was a mystery awaiting further revelation at this point, it is already there in the scriptures that we would be included by faith. Notice this in verse 8. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We find this in two places. Genesis 12, which we read earlier. Remember at the end of that passage, I will bless you I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. But verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 18, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham, the Lord says. So drawing on these passages... When God spoke of blessing the Gentiles through Abraham, he anticipated what? He anticipated the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. God always intended to graft Gentiles into his salvation plan by their trust in Israel's Messiah. Even at the time that he chose Abraham and his offspring, he was choosing believing Gentiles to be part of that flow part of that vine, whatever fig you want to use. And here we are today. This is our heritage. This truth right here, verse 8, for me, this is better than finding out where I came from on Ancestry.com. I mean, this is beautiful. This is saying all along, God had this assembly here today in view when he chose Abraham. And we have been grafted into that vine, into that work of God, into that plan of salvation. And this gathering bears bold witness of that plan. As the Apostle Peter put it, to us who were once not a people, we are now through faith the people of God. Once not a people, now we are the people of God. Verse 9 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham serves not merely as a model, but as one puts it, he becomes a determinative paradigm for those who follow. A determinative paradigm for those who follow. Not merely a model, but the head, in a sense, of people of faith. Abraham is the father of faith, and we seek salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We identify ourselves as his spiritual children in this new age. We do not become Jews, I don't think is his point. I don't think he's redefining what an Israelite is ethnically. But we join the family of God along with believing Jews, and we become spiritually the children of Abraham by faith alone and not by works of the law. Let me take just three ideas, and let's chase them for a few moments each as we reflect on this passage. It is one that's a bit distinct from where we live everyday life. As I mentioned, these are not battles that we are facing necessarily, but there are principles and ideas that God intends for us to consider and to know, and they're essential to our growth. And the first is that idea of the sons of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham. How can you read this passage and not ask, am I a son, am I a daughter of Abraham? Are you related to God in such a way that you have been grafted into the people of God and stand in the stream of salvation history with the roots that are in Abraham and his call? Is that you? Is that your identity? Is that your heritage? This is a vital question for us all to ask. Now, how can I miss out on that? I don't miss out on it by being a Gentile, right? That, we can celebrate that and give thanks for that. The way to miss this, there's one way. And we really need to come to terms with this. The one way I can miss being a child of Abraham is to try to become a child of Abraham by my good works. By my efforts to qualify myself before God, I can miss the whole thing. Good works, let me make clear, are vital. We're called to live out good works in our response to God, but we must never see them as means of salvation, as the way to get salvation from God. The key here is not what you do. The key here is who you know. And it is a knowledge of Jesus Christ crucified and risen that is the essential door into a right relationship with God. Are you a child of Abraham? Are you one in the stream of faith? Well, the faith that has now been revealed is the faith that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sin as God in flesh, standing in your place and thus providing Forgiveness and justification vindicated by his resurrection. That's the message now, and the call is to believe. So let's look secondly at that idea, hearing and believing. Hearing and believing, a fundamental conviction of the Christian faith is that God speaks. That is to say, God communicates with us through the use of language. And it's good that we 
bore down into this idea. God communicates through language. There's a lot of people that want to debate that and think about it and ask if that's rational. Just deal with it. It's what he says. He communicates through language. He's able to do it. He's done it very well. He does not do this often. He's not sending newsletters every week. But he does on occasion avail himself of the structures of human language to communicate this truth. And when God's Word combines with God's Spirit in one who hears the message, the Word regenerates and transforms that soul. We read it earlier today, Romans 10 and verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Actually, that was the adult class, but it worked. <laughs> we just read that in the adult class. One of them. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, that's not literal hearing, necessarily. There's communication through human language in various ways. It could be sign language. It could be reading the text of, a, of the scriptures in a book. But the point is that there is a message communicated through commu uh, human communication. But faith does not come by sight alone. That I think we have to insist on. Even if one is saved by the aid of pictures, it is the message those pictures reveal that is the key. If it was just a picture book, it'd be very difficult to know how anyone could come to Christ any more effectively than if it was looking at the sky. You see that there's a powerful God. You see that there's a creator God, but you don't know how he saves you. It is through human language, language, through communication, that we learn the truth. So the gospel is a joyful... Let me say this. The gospel is not most fundamentally a call to action. Although it is a call to repentance, it's not most fundamentally a call to action. The gospel is fundamentally a joyful report to be heard, comprehended, trusted, treasured, and then announced to others. More on that in a moment, but let's think thirdly then of sanctification by faith, of growth as believers by faith. It's folly to be saved by faith in the message of what Jesus has done for us, to pay sin's penalty in our place, to rise from the dead, and then for us to think we can grow through works. There's a lot of churches that teach that systematically. Saved by faith, grow through works. Is that not what Paul's saying here? You can't start one way and finish a different way. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 speaks to us about the significance of works. God saved us to do good works. He had a purpose and intention when he saved us that we would indeed obey him and do what is right. But we are not sanctified by doing good works. There's a difference. I'm called to good works. I'm not progressively changed by those good works in my own effort. Now those good works might be part of my growth but I am sanctified by faith. We grow by faith in God's counsel and promises. So, 
I originally wrote this next sentence this way. Are you struggling with a major battle with sin? I rewrote the sentence this way. How are you facing the battle with sin? <laughs> We're all facing a major battle with sin all the time, aren't we? So how is it going? Bitterness? Can't clean up my speech? Lust? Envy? Greed? Self-pity? What's the battle with sin that you're dealing with? Number of levels for all of us. Fill it in. And then hear me as I preach to my own heart. Pursuing spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading and prayer and mutual confession are important tools in our arsenal to fight these sins. They're vital. But our growth in holiness and overcoming of sin is not realized by good deeds. It's not through good deeds that we're going to win the battle with sin. We grow by believing what God has said. And all faith is a failure to believe God. Hear and believe that God's will is good. Hear and believe His promises will come true. That He will reward those who seek Him and bring a harvest of righteousness. Hear and believe that He has broken the power of canceled sin. And that He sets spiritual prisoners free. Hear and believe that His sacrifice is the double cure, saving from divine wrath and making us pure. Hear and believe that the Lord who began a good work in you will progressively bring it to completion until the day that you meet Jesus Christ. Believe it. He said it. Hear and believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hear and believe that I have been crucified with Christ And yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Hear and believe. What folly to rely on our own flesh, on our own schemes, on our own good works, on our own actions, trusting in ourselves and our self-achievement and our self-disciplined efforts and not to look to Christ in faith. We started this one way. We heard and we believed and we need to carry it on the same way to hear and to believe. To be saved We must hear God's Word and trust it. To grow in Christ, we must hear God's Word and believe. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, what tremendous help we need. We all confess before you, we who know Christ as Savior, There are so many times when we hear your word and we say in our heart that we would not articulate it perhaps to you. We do say in our heart, I don't think it's good. There's a better way. 
there's something you're withholding from me. This is what I have to do. This is who I am. This is the way that I've got to deal with this. Lord, forgive us to not see your word as goodness, as pure counsel that would lead us to Christ's likeness. And forgive us as we choose to act in light of our unbelief and pursue the pleasures of the flesh, of the desire to be made much of, of the passion to please our own fancies. And all along saying that your word is not good, your spirit is not present. Your truth is not liberating. We bow before you humbly with desires of heart to change and to grow, to recognize that what we have begun in faith we must carry on to faith. And so I pray in behalf of those who are striving to please you and to fit themselves by doing works of self-righteousness, I pray that you'd bring them to salvation in Christ today. And for those of us who have come to that place, may we live the same way. May we learn to hear your word, to believe it, and to act upon it in joyful response. Do this work in us, we ask in the name of our Savior. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and take just a few moments of personal application and silence to think through some of the things that we've just heard.